Okay, great. Yeah, thanks everyone um, for coming. This is obviously, you know, a somber introduction to the conference with the horrors sort of unfolding in Ukraine, but I think it's um, very important that the left has a discussion of how do we orient to this conflict? Are we cheering our government dumping weapons and training troops for this uh, bloodbath, or do we oppose that? Um, and fight war and imperialism, um, both our governments and, you know, that of any government that's um, subjugating other countries. And, you know, just to introduce, I probably don't need to go over it that much, but clearly what's unfolding in Ukraine is immense carnage. You're talking about some estimates of hundreds of thousands of dead, a World War I-style trench warfare around Bakhmut in the east of the country. Um, you know, the... The, um, as well as the carnage within Ukraine itself, you really have the spectre of an all-out nuclear war um, like we haven't seen since the end of the Cold War between uh, the US-dominated NATO alliance on one hand and the nuclear-armed state of Russia on the other. So that really is a terrifying prospect. And, you know, as the conflict has escalated over the, since the Russian invasion at the start of last year, you've seen again and again and again you know, the stakes ratchet up in the conflict. The UN Under Secretary General um, just said in the last week or whatever it was that, yeah, we haven't seen this risk of nuclear war since the end of the Cold War. And that announcement was in response to Russia announcing it would move tactical nuclear weapons into Belarus. So, yeah, it's a very, very serious and dangerous uh, conflict. and. It's also spilling out well beyond the conflict zone in terms of militarisation in Europe and more broadly. Like you can see the, the end of last year, the arms manufacturers, Lockheed Martin, um, Northrop, Northrop Grumman, their um, share prices jumping by like 40% because they just know not only is there a fortune to be made out of this conflict, but also out of, you know, all these countries in Europe rearming. Germany's, you know, doubled its military budget. You've had... Um, Finland joined NATO, um, Sweden in the process of joining NATO, the US dominated alliance to, you know, line up against Russia and increasingly China. And on top of that, you've had the conflict sort of um, exacerbate the uh, political and economic crises around the world that were already in full swing um, um, in the wake of the COVID pandemic. So. The war in Ukraine has exacerbated the food shortages. It has taken immense amount of resources away from health, education and living standards and dumped them into the, you know, um, military industries. It has uh, resulted in higher energy prices and price gouging by energy companies. So there's an intimate connection between, you know, the conflict in Ukraine itself and the conflict between bosses and workers. It's erupting all over the world. One example now is France. There's a you know, huge rebellion right now happening over pension reform. So what I wanted to sort of get to in this talk and look at is how do you explain the war in Ukraine and what should what should our response be? Because it's been very clear, like accompanying any war, you get a propaganda war. Like we saw with, um, it's just been the anniversary of the start of the war in Iraq and we all remember the weapons of mass destruction and we need to save civilization from the terrorists and all this stuff that was pumped out. Now the propaganda war is about the good war, defending national sovereignty in Ukraine against big 
uh, bad Russia. And that lecture is being given in many cases by leaders and media who cheered the invasion of Iraq, who cheered the invasion of Afghanistan and all the rest of it. And it's certainly something that the new government um, of Anthony Albanese has been at pains to demonstrate their commitment to um, supporting NATO in this conflict, for putting resources into this conflict. Like on the anniversary of the war, um, Albanese, you know, gave a speech committing more resources, committing more training of troops um, for the war in Ukraine, talking about, um, you know, this conflict is entirely driven by Russia and that's the end of story. So Albanese said, no one's threatening Russia, no one's threatening Russian sovereignty. Putin could stop this war today and should stop it today. So really that's the narrative. We're the good guys, the West is the good guys, Russia's the bad guys. and. Yeah, I think it's very important to sort of bust those myths. So that's one of the things I wanted to do in this talk, like go into that in a bit more detail and basically make the argument that this isn't a war of national self-defense in Ukraine. Fundamentally, it is now a proxy war between Russia and NATO, um, who are both, you know, imperialist forces and really um, in terms of world politics, the United States and, and NATO is, you know, the most bloodstained imperialist power. Um, and also I wanted to talk about how this conflict is bound up with and being accelerated by the much bigger rivalry between the United States and China, which is dominating world politics, and then just finish with why we need to oppose our own government's involvement. So, yeah, what I wanted to start with was the proxy war part, why, why it is a proxy war, and to do that, sort of go into some of the history um, of... Uh, leading up to the conflict, going right back to the, the end of the Cold War. So obviously, um, Vladimir Putin's a reactionary right-wing capitalist ruler. He's made it his project to um, revive Russian imperialism. He's increasingly, you know, asserted Russian power abroad, for example, in the, you know, vicious civil war in Syria. But I think if you want to understand this conflict and why it is so vicious and why it erupted in the first place, you absolutely cannot uh, ignore the role of the West. Like, the West has um, played a major role in instigating this conflict, has played a major role in obstructing any sort of peace talks, has dumped immense amount of weapons into the conflict zone, has clearly been willing to risk war in Ukraine and nuclear war to expand NATO, um, and is, yeah, very happy to be fighting um, a war to weaken Russia and set an example for its rival China with um, Ukrainian dead and NATO and United States weapons. So, yeah, if you look, want to look back at the roots of the conflict, at the end of the USSR, the US Secretary of State James Baker um, promised Soviet President uh, Gorbachev that in exchange for the reunification of Germany, NATO, the US-dominated um, uh, anti-Soviet alliance would not extend a single e inch to the east of um, of its current borders at the end of World War I, World War um, at the end of the Cold War. Sorry, um, and the reason he said that is because obviously that would be seen as a um, provocative escalation of tensions with Russia at that time. But since then, what have you seen? Um, you know, in 2019, there was 12 new NATO bases east of Germany. Like I said, um, Finland and Norway have now 
Finland's actually joined, Norway's in the process of joining. So what you've had is an immense expansion of NATO, this aggressive imperialist alliance right up to Russia's borders, and that really ratcheting up tensions, and the United States knowing it would ratchet up tensions and doing it anyway, because they ended the end of the Cold War, they were top dog, they want to take full advantage to project their power. So um, more recently, what you've seen is the West playing a very concerted role, interfering in Ukraine itself. Like, I don't have time to go into detail, but in 2014, you had um, a period of unrest in Ukraine, protests under the banner of the Maidan movement. But really, the political content of, of those protests and the conflicts um, within Ukraine over those protests were about, on the one hand, uh, pro-Western oligarchs trying to get their way and secure their profits and pro-Russian oligarchs, on the other hand, trying to fight for their position. And, you know, the US and NATO was extremely brazen in trying to take advantage of that situation to set up their people um, in Kiev. And there were even leaked phone calls of US diplomats having a chat about, you know, in 2014, who, who should be running Ukraine, who would be best for us to run Ukraine, um, um, who would be the most useful tools um, in Ukraine. Since then, you're talking about tens of billions poured into the most sensitive parts of the Ukrainian state, beefing up the military, making it interoperable with NATO and the US um, alliance. And yeah, even in 2020, the, the CIA director, Bill Burns, was writing that Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for Russia. So going into the actual conflict itself, there was a moment where Biden was called on by Putin to um, renounce any potential um, Ukrainian membership of NATO, and he wasn't interested in doing that. Uh, whether or not they put Ukraine in NATO, they put NATO in Ukraine well before that discussion even happened. And once the conflict broke out itself, you had Boris Johnson visiting Ukraine, saying the peace talk should end and committing to massive arms shipments um, in the course of that conflict. So. Yeah, that's a sort of context I think is very, very important. And I think the rhetoric about, you know, we're the good guys, this is just a defensive thing. It's designed to obscure that history to make sure it's not discussed. And it's very, very important for us to understand that the same imperialist, self-interested expansion we did see in Afghanistan, in Iraq, the West has been doing that with in um, um, Eastern Europe as well. So. Um, I just wanted to touch on briefly, I don't know how much time, but on the Western influence in the actual conflict itself. I mean, you could go into a lot of detail about this, about how it started off, we'll just put in defensive weapons, then it's missile systems that can potentially fire into Russia, then it's tanks, now Poland's dropping in planes, they're talking about F-16s, but I guess a um, symbol or, or like a very clear example of the West role in actually running the war now um, was the leaks that have um, come out in the last couple of days of uh, NATO documents planning the next Ukrainian offensive in the spring, which have basically been these detailed sort of flow charts of all the training the West is doing, including Australia, to train up troops. They're equipping troops, like something like nine out of 12 battalions for the offensive are trained, equipped and advised by um, NATO and the West. So that gives some idea of, you know, the way they see this as their war, pursuing their aims um, um, in Eastern Europe, weakening Russia. But 
Um, the next thing I wanted to touch on, which I think is quite important, is just um, understanding this conflict in a context of world imperialist rivalry, that it's not just about um, Ukraine fed the US, NATO and the West, and um, particularly the rivalry with China is playing into this in a very serious way. So I wanted to start with that. Um, and yeah, to just set the stage for that, to sort of go over the um, Marxist theory of imperialism. So we don't see wars and um, these kind of conflicts as driven just by individual bad policy decisions by bad actors and particular leaders. We see military conflict, the compulsion towards war, the compulsion towards the type of bloodbath that's happening in Ukraine and has happened so many times before as a built into the DNA of the system which compels particularly the most powerful states into a big conflict on the world stage um, over who controls the sea lanes, who controls the markets, who controls the access to raw materials um, for the companies of their state which are bound up with their state. If you want to look at some um, theory on that, the writing of revolutionary so socialist um, Bukharin, who was writing during World War I, wrote a book called um, Imperialism in World Economy in the heat of that war, sort of making an argument that in the face of imperialism, we are, it's very, very important to understand that it is a dynamic of the system and to fight it, you need to understand that and, and you need to have a view of how to end, end capitalism itself. So I don't have time, I don't think, to go into his theory in detail, but he basically says there's two aspects of capitalism which drive this world imperialist violent competition. On the one hand, Capitalist competition results in uh, concentration and centralisation of capital, of uh, companies um, in the course of competition becoming so big that they can no longer operate just within their state and that they increasingly become merged with the capitalist state itself um, um, in the course of that centralisation. They become too big to fail. They become the core of the, the economies of the major capitalist states. And as a corollary of that, um, those states and the companies um, attached to them necessarily rely on an internationalisation of production. They need raw materials from across the globe. They need markets from across the globe. They need international trade routes necessarily to operate in a viable way. So what does that mean? It means the biggest states clash um, on the world stage uh, and they clash violently. In terms of the way um, this is playing out in Ukraine, the, the thing I wanted to draw out was just the role of the rivalry between US and China. Like obviously a few decades ago, the idea that China was any sort of military threat to the United States and its domination of the world would have seemed ridiculous. Now you've got a situation where the Lowy Institute is saying, you know, China will, the Chinese economy will overtake the US in um, US dollar terms by 2030. You've got Biden saying, um, the US is in competition to win the 21st century with China. That's how he puts it. Um, so the US is basically afraid that this shifting economic balance will result in a shifting military balance and them being top dog, having 750 military bases around the world um, versus China's one military base, that balance could shift and they want to um, do everything they can as quickly as possible. Um, to stop that happening and they're willing clearly um, to risk uh, nuclear war in the process of that. So you've seen provocations um, in the South China Sea over Taiwan. Um, you could have a long list of those by the United States. So 
I think the way that fits in with the conflict in Ukraine is that uh, the West and the United States and Australia see it as a dress rehearsal for a potential conflict with China. It's one, if they can give Russia a big bloody nose, do maximum damage to Russia, no matter the cost for Ukrainian people or, or the hundreds of thousands of dead, that will help them in having a credible um, you know, uh, threat against China. For example, taking Taiwan and trying to assert its control of the sea lanes in the approach to China, which are extremely strategic. And this comes out more and more explicitly. So. Um, a few days ago, the NATO Secretary General um, Stoltenberg was reported as saying to Fairfax Media, um, Beijing's watching closely the war in Ukraine, the price President Putin is paying and the potential war rewards he can achieve. This shows that our security, meaning NATO's security and Australia's, are linked. So it's seeing the Pacific region, seeing Australia as part of world competition with China and the conflict in Ukraine is, is very important um, in, in waging that. The other thing I wanted to touch on um, just quickly was, you know, some of the conclusions that have been drawn by past revolutionaries in um, understanding that imperialist system. And, you know, uh, the Russian revolutionary Vladimir Lenin puts it most sharply, saying that in, in the midst of these imperialist conflicts, the workers of the world, revolutionaries, should support the defeat of their own ruling class. So in an inter-imperialist conflict, that's a policy you should have. We're not for our rulers, quote-unquote, our rulers winning and successfully um, dominating other nations overseas, where for them to get getting defeated when they're attempting to do that. And that should be the policy of revolutionaries. The main en enemy is at home. Um, but it's very, very noticeable that, you know, large sections of the left have not taken this type of position um, in relation to Ukraine. So, you know, while... Uh, left-wingers won't celebrate NATO as a force for democracy and freedom and all this stuff, or even necessarily try and cover up the crimes that they've been involved in in Afghanistan and other things like that. They will frame Ukraine as fundamentally a war of national defence um, yeah, in, in Ukraine. So Gilbert Achar, who's a, a socialist working in London, takes this type of position. He says the Ukrainians fight against the Russian invasion is just, then the conclusion that is drawn is that therefore um, we shouldn't oppose the arms shipments um, and all the rest um, of our own governments. But this ignores where the war came from, the extent NATO's actually running the war, the way it's being driven by their interests, and you know the fairly explicit way it's now bound up with um, the competition with China. And, you know, writing during World War One, these pro-war socialist arguments are not new. Like Lenin um, came up against this argument about that, you know, because Austro-Hungary invaded Serbia at the start of World War One, um, then other states and the world imperialist alliances uh, attacking um, their rivals was actually somehow defence of Serbia. But what did it lead to? Absolute world bloodbath on an unimaginable scale. And what he said on that was... Um, dude, dude, dude. To Serbia, to perhaps 1% or, or so of the participants in the present war, the war is a continuation of the politics of the liberation movement. To the other 99%, 
the war is a continuation of the politics of imperialism. So he writes about um, this type of argument extensively and, you know, um, argues that when a war is a struggle between one set of robbers and a, another set of robbers, our job is to take advantage of that struggle to um, combat and overthrow them all. Um, so just getting up to like uh, 20 minutes, there's a lot more I could sort of go to on this, but I just sort of wanted to finish on um, that link between what's happening in Ukraine and, and the rivalry with China. Like Albanese actually gave his speech on the anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine in Wollongong at the university in Wollongong, which I don't think is a coincidence because the Albanese government wants to build a $10 billion nuclear submarine base in Port Kembla near Wollongong as part of the AUKUS pact. So what you see with this sort of bleeding heart speech he gives down there is an attempt to use this myth of Ukraine being a good war to soften up Wollongong, the people there who are opposing the war, um, um, for, you know, war with China and the military infrastructure and the dangers that come come from escalating war with China. So I think we have to see the debates over Ukraine and the debates over the Australian government's involvement is very important. If they're using it to soften us up for war with China, we need to use our response and our understanding of it to um, prepare the resistance to that war now and impose it, oppose imperialism that's happening. And in doing that, we will be joining you know, the tens of thousands that were on the streets of Germany recently against the war, the workers in Italy and Greece who have taken actions to stop the NATO arms shipments, the um, courageous protesters who have taken repeatedly to the streets of Russia to say no um, to Putin's war. And I think the, the way the, the growing imperialist conflict around the world is bound up with the economic crisis is very important. There was... I was watching a thing about the big pension protests in France and they were just interviewing random people on the street and they stopped this one guy and he's just like, they don't have money for pensions, but they got money for war in Ukraine. Absolute rubbish. We need to fight this government. We need to fight war. And I think that was just a random person on the street. I think that sentiment is very, very powerful and important um, for us to understand as, you know, anti-imperialists and as socialists.